everyone, and welcome to episode 83 of Yukon 360. That's the only podcast ever conceived by human beings that covers the University of Connecticut from every angle, and uh, coming to you from every angle of Connecticut and adjoining states. My name's Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts for this journey, and joining me are my colleagues, Tyler Silverio. Tyler, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good, thanks. Julie Bartuka. Julie, how are things? Going okay. Okay, well, we'll take it. <laughs> and uh, Ken Best, how's life in the Mansfield Center Bureau? It's actually quiet. They, the lawnmowers were here yesterday, so maybe we'll have a silent spring here. They've, wasn't that the name of like a, a book, Silent Spring? Yes. <laughs> I, think, I remember thinking it was a bad thing. It was about pesticides, right? Yeah. Tyler, it sounds like that was before our time. Oh, well, hang on. Yeah, if it is, I, I haven't heard of it. <laughs> Pretty much everything we talk about was before you talk. I'm lumping myself in with the 20-year-old. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm young and hip, too. Um, yes. Yeah. No, I'm not. But I do happen to be the facilitator of a hip podcast, and that's what you're listening Very to. Hip. And uh, we've got some good stuff for you, too. Um, actually, we have some interesting news, and we have a follow-up on a story from uh, last week that Ken's going to tell us about. Ken? Well, you recall we talked about the Joni Mitchell conference last time, and uh, during that conference, uh, President Tom Katsalaeus awarded an honorary degree to Joni, which was accepted by one of the panelists at the conference, her good friend Dan Levitin, who is known for his work in cognitive psychology and neuroscience, but he's also known as a writer, musician, and record producer. He's the founding dean of arts and sciences at the Minerva Schools at KGI and a distinguished faculty fellow at the Haas School of Business at California Berkeley. He helped Joni Mitchell with the production of her three most recent albums, Shine, Love Has Many Faces, a quartet ballet, and Waiting to be Danced, and the Starbucks artist choice, Joni Mitchell. He also worked in several capacities on albums by Blue Oyster Cult, Joe Satriani, Steely Dan, Stevie Wonder, Santana, and The Grateful Dead. So he knows his music. Levitin conveyed Joni's appreciation for the honorary degree, including this. Jody has a great sense of humor, and this is what helped her to survive polio, to survive a misogynistic music business, and to reach so many people around the world. She asked me to tell you that as someone who herself was not a good student and who never attended college, this honorary doctorate means so much to her. And that when she looks in the mirror tomorrow morning, she's going to say, yeah, what's up, doc? That was very cute. And you you know what the what's up doc means, right? Yeah, she's a doctor now. <laughs> no. Please don't tell me that reference is from before your time because you're going to make me feel like a No, of course old. I get that reference. <laughs> okay, all right. Thank you. That's an obvious reference. Yeah. And for those who don't, it's Bugs Bunny. Yes. Well, that was very neat. And I, I understand the conference was very well received and, and people really uh, enjoyed it. It was a, a great event. There's a lot of excitement online. Um, yeah, people were really excited by our tweets about it. Almost 300 people registered, and as in all conferences, people were in and out, but there were always like 150 people at the sessions, so that was pretty good. It's been a weird um, positive side effect of the pandemic that these types of things, you can actually have participation from all over, where yeah, before awesome. everyone had to gather in one room, it's actually kind of, it's more limiting on who can attend, but this way you can, you know, Johnny Mitchell fans from Canada can, can tune in, things like that. Exactly. Tune in. That's a very hip reference to it. <laughs> tune in a television set. Tune in, turn on, drop out. I get that reference. Okay. Right. <laughs> Around the time I have of news. I have okay. News. What's uh, what's your news? 
There's some prestigious awards being given out this time of year. We have two UConn students who were recently named Goldwater Scholars. The Goldwater is considered the nation's premier scholarship for undergraduates studying math, natural sciences, and engineering. Congratulations to Catherine Lee, class of 2022, who is an honors student majoring in structural biology and biophysics, and Seema Patel, also class of 22, who is majoring in molecular and cell biology and minoring in healthcare management and insurance studies. In addition, a UConn undergrad, three grad students, and 10 alumni have earned the National Science Foundation's Graduate Research Fellowship, which support outstanding students in NSF-supported disciplines who are pursuing research-based master's and doctoral degrees at accredited institutions in the U.S. Awardees include Burke Alpay, who is graduating this year with a dual degree in computer science and math, first-year chemistry grad student Caroline Donaghy, first-year electrical and computer engineering grad student Brandon Diagostino, and first-year mechanical engineering doctoral student Joshua DuPont. You can read about them and the 10 alumni recipients at today.uconn.edu. I'd also like to throw in a congratulations to junior Sage Phillips and junior Sina Wazer, who are Truman Scholars for this year. That is the first time in UConn history that we have had two Truman Scholars in the same year. Very cool. Very cool stuff. All right. So uh, that's the news. And uh, Ken, you've got a discussion for us today. What are, what, are you, what are we talking about? As a UConn student, Ben Shaken took classes in sociology, political science, and urban and community studies. He also was a leader in student organizations such as WHUS Radio and the UConn chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, after graduating in 2010, uh, he began volunteering in political campaigns and working in nonprofit community organizations. Today, he is the manager of advocacy and public policy for the Connecticut Community Nonprofit Alliance, which works to ensure government adequately and fairly supports human service providers for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, as well as behavioral and substance abuse disorders. Uh, he was elected to his first term on the Mansfield Town Council in 2015 and was appointed deputy mayor of Mansfield two years ago. I've known Ben since he was a student, and so his leadership and organizational skills when he led WHUS as operations manager during a significant time of change at the radio station. We talked about his career in the nonprofit sector and the issues he faces as an elected official. What led you to have so much interest in public service? I think it's just something that I've always kind of done, and it's something that I did when I was a student. I would be lying if I said it was some sort of career path that I set out for myself. I, I just sort of fell into a number of opportunities as I was in college and, and as I graduated around political campaigns and local government and started off volunteering, helping some folks run for office and ended up a few years later running for office locally where I, in Mansfield where I grew up myself. And that, that sort of dovetailed nicely with the career track that led me through the nonprofit world. And I sort of do political work for the nonprofit community now as, as and have for the last six years or so. Nonprofits have always been around in this country. If you go back to de Tocqueville, his observations about the voluntary nature of, of the American people, working for Connecticut Community Nonprofit Alliance, uh, you're surrounded by people who are of a like mind, but there's always challenges in the nonprofit sector, N not just raising money and looking to solve community problems, but just interactions with people and the, the real diversity of needs that are out there that are trying to be met. What are you doing as manager of advocacy and public policy to move the agendas forward for all these organizations? I think your observation is right that government 
and nonprofits have always existed trying to serve people in, in our society in one way or another. Obviously, what that means is always changing and definitely has changed dramatically since, since Tocqueville's time. But this idea that, that nonprofits have taken over something that the government once did or anything like that is not true. I mean, the nonprofits have always taken care of the people in society who need support, and they've supported them in a variety of different ways throughout the years. Part of the reason why I've been successful and what I do for my day job is I have a genuine belief that part of the duty of a functioning society to make sure that everyone lives in that society has the tools that they need to be successful and to to grow and to to raise a family and to be healthy and and what that means from a sort of day-to-day functional perspective today is it means that government needs to spend a fairly significant amount of its resources to fund a system of support and care for people who need support and care in order to achieve best that they can achieve in their lives. And that's kind of what we have built in this country since the early 20th century, certainly since the establishment of the Medicaid program in the late 60s, and definitely since the sort of movement to deinstitutionalize people who have behavioral health and, and intellectual and developmental disability needs and serve them better in a much more integrated way within our communities than warehousing folks in, in large institutions, which is what we did in Connecticut and in America until the 1980s in one way or another. So that's kind of what in a very large and ideological and idealistic sense, you know, I think of the nonprofit community as doing in, uh, in Connecticut and the folks that I advocate on behalf of at the state capitol and in Washington are the folks who are providing those kinds of services on the ground every day. If they weren't there, you know, our government or our society, you know, one's a reflection of the other, would have an obligation to care for them in one way or another. And the system that we have set up sort of requires government to work with community-based organizations and, and others to set up a good system of care for all of us. My job is to basically try to make that work better, to make funding available, to keep programs competitive, to keep staff compensated at a reasonable and at a, in an equitable way. And, and that often means trying to get as much funding out of government as we can, especially in a time when government funding has not been very readily available. Is funding the major issue that, that just never goes away in, in, this, in this field? Yeah, definitely. The reality is that in the human services delivery system in Connecticut and across the country, you know, government pays for the vast majority of it, whether that's the Medicaid program, whether that's funding from the federal government or state government or local government. Uh, it's something that in recent times, and by recent, I mean like 20 or 30 years, government has really never kept pace with what the cost of delivering the services are. And if government all of a sudden decided that they were going to bring those services up to where they should be, it would be a, a massive and, and immediate investment by orders of magnitude in what paying right now. So for, you know, that's kind of the reason why it's this never-ending thing. Um, even if we're successful in getting a small or even medium or large size increase in funding, especially from the state government, you're still far behind where you should be. It's one of those areas where if the federal government ever decided to, you know, make investment the way that they have recently, in, you know, in response to, to the pandemic, make some of that kind of thing, you know, kind of stuff permanent, they really have the ability, the way a state and local government doesn't, to create a really transformative policy change overnight. But, you know, we'll see that the things that they have done as related to 
COVID are wonderful and sort of represent a major shift in how services for people and people generally are supported. Uh, let's move over to your uh, sideline of, of work, being uh, an elected official, which in these days, uh, as it always is, is a, a difficult job to do. Get consensus on an agreement on what needs to be done and how it should be done. As a student, you studied political science, but you also dove right in, as you said earlier, uh, working on campaigns. Now that you've been an elected official for several years now, in fact, deputy mayor of, of the town that UConn is part of, what surprised you about being in elective office that you might not have thought about before you actually got there? I think one of the things that folks don't realize is that much of the work that happens, I think, at any elected office, but certainly more present in local municipal offices is that much of that work is fairly mundane and it's supporting the work that the civil servants who work for the government do. It's it's helping them with guidance and providing direction. Kind of actually, if you think about it, a pretty cool system that the entire municipal government in Mansfield, and this is the case basically everywhere, Local government is sort of run by a group of nine volunteers who come from different walks of life, who have some extra time that they would like to serve their community with, and and that they set the direction that the professional staff in town, you know, sort of run with. We had a meeting last night where we spent most of our time talking about applying for a grant for a historic preservation project and uh, upcoming road construction projects, and you know, got a lengthy update about our town's response to COVID-19. And, and that's kind of the business of, of the day. There's not a lot of symbolic or other, you know, sexy, if you will, legislating. It, it's a lot of trying to solve little problems that need to be solved to make the, you know, the government function better. And a lot of that is very similar when you start talking about working with the state or federal government too. There's big headline grabbing things that happen, but 99% of the work that happens in a state legislature or in Congress is the little things that need to happen to make government function better. Nobody expected the pandemic, but it's thrown a big monkey wrench into everything that's in daily life. How has it changed in the community here that may not be uh, observed easily by most people? I think there's probably going to be a mix of, of response, I think, you know, of, of sort of getting back to normal. I think there's going to be things that people are going to, many people will find easy to do. And there's going to be things that a lot of people have, have trouble with. You know, I think the two major issues in this community, it's not like we're unique, are really going to be, you know, how our school systems are going to function coming back in the fall, having spent a year remote, how children are going to respond to, you know, a year of trauma and what that's going to mean for the generation of, of little kids that have gone through this. It's, I think, still a very open question whether government is really prepared for how to deal with that. It's not something that school systems across the country have, are, you know, pre-pandemic were prepared to handle en masse. And it's something that I'm really hoping everyone sort of gets their act together. I think the same will, will be true for just the society at large. I think there's going to be a, a group of, of people who have a really, really difficult time getting back to normal and making sure that there are enough resources available to serve all those folks who may not have needed services pre-pandemic or who may have 
needed them and put them off for a year, I mean, that's going to be a significant issue. It's more specific to this community where we have a local economy that relies really heavily on Yukon and that makes sense. Yukon more than doubles our population for seven months out of the normal year. This year, the population was not more than doubled. On-campus students were cut by about two-thirds and it's had an effect on all of our local businesses and we're going to need to hope as, as many of them survive as possible and do what we can at the local level to make sure that we're providing the support that we can provide, which is limited, unfortunately, to the businesses in the community that, that are going to need that support to make it through. And hopefully Yukon will be back in the fall at, at full strength and this bump in the road can be overcome. One of the, the jobs of being an elected office is to also not just deal with what's going on now, but look forward to what might happen in the future. The the downtown is an example of that. It it was thought of many, many years ago, but it finally took hold and and is now real. What is the the town looking at going forward uh, with growth that they would like to see and, you know, taking everything into account, how it's going to happen given budgets? Let me just first level set a little bit here. You know, the, I grew up here. I've lived here since I was 10. So that's 1998. And the downtown is something that folks were talking about then. It took 15 years to open. It opened right around when I graduated from UConn in 2010. And it was, I think, at least for me then, an open question about whether it would be successful. You know, I had grown up, and for those of you who you know, might listen to this this podcast who are, you know, UConn alums from the more distant past than me. You'll remember all the businesses that were in that store, 24 Plaza. And I remember how frequently things went out of business before we had this big downtown. And I would say it was a smashing, you know, success that there was a lot, there was a big open question about whether it would be successful. And it was, it, you know, it really took a, a once in a century pandemic to really challenge in a significant way the, the vast majority of the retail side of the businesses and even, and, and the housing has been full and continues, I think, to be pretty full since, since day one. Moving forward, I think it, it's a question of how do we in government help support what's happening in the private industry. And that's another thing that I think folks often forget is these are, I think they're split into three or four different properties. They've all been, you know, changed hands as property owners have built and sold, which is something that happens with any piece of property, whether it's a house or a commercial business or whatever. And so how do we in government support private business owners who own the property who are running businesses there and try to make it so that they can be successful given the the pandemic? I think the American Rescue Plan is going to give us some tools that we really didn't have before to provide some support. We just don't know exactly what they are yet. We're waiting on the federal government to tell us exactly what allowable uses of that funding will be. It'll hopefully give us a chance to stabilize the folks that have been able to make it through the pandemic and be able to attract businesses to fill the vacancies that have been created. And then you asked sort of about development looking into the future. We are very interested, I think, as a community for a variety of reasons in development in the Four Corners area. That's an area that's been a commercial zone since forever. And when I was a kid, there were businesses there that are no longer there. That, that were longstanding, you know, businesses like Kathy John's and Rosales. And we, as a community and as a state, made a really significant investment in extending our sewer system to that part of town so that it could support uh, commercial development. 
And and we're we're really hopeful. I think that commercial development in a variety of ways will happen there. We have housing needs in town for all sorts of populations. We have a need for there to be more non-restaurant business space. And, you know, we're really hopeful, I think, that development there will move forward as, you know, as quickly and as expediently as possible. We have a lot of interested parties right now waiting to resolve some of the unresolved issues and make it happen. One of the things that people always think about when when they look at people in public life is, is that they're looking forward to the next step. You and I have talked just a little bit about going forward and it was several years ago, and I'm just wondering where you're, where you're thinking about uh, your future. You've been very committed to to being very, very local rather than going beyond that. Is that still your thinking? I like doing what I'm doing. It's a good way to give back to the community. I, so a good way to use some of my extra sort of time. And, and, you know, some people coach Little League and some people are on town council. And I like doing what I'm doing. I don't have any plans. Politics is all about timing and if I'm in the right place at the right time, we'll see what happens. But, you know, I like being on the town council. I like being the deputy mayor. I think it's a really great uh, opportunity. And I'm very grateful for everyone who's uh, who's helped along the way and for who supports being on the town council. What's the question that you think people should ask you that they don't when they talk to you, people in the community? It's a good question. I think there's always an assumption that people have that there's that there's sort of more going on under the surface than, than they realize. And I'm not, that's not always the case. So it's not really a question that I wish people ask. It's more of a, the reality I think of, of how, at least on the local level decisions are made is, is it's, it's a fairly non-political and, you know, environment for the most part. You wouldn't necessarily see that if you watched our town council meetings. The staff that we have that run town hall are, are sort of just trying to do a job and do the best that they can to, to enforce the, the local laws that we have on the books and to make sure that our community thrives. Some people at least often jump to a conclusion that when something happens that they don't understand or don't like, there's something underhanded going on when, when often it's just the case that, uh, you know, someone didn't anticipate that there'd be opposition about an issue or that they, you know, they might have missed some of the initial work that went into a particular thing or project. And often I think people in town government are want input from people who are, you know, on all sides of an issue, but the way that our system is set up in terms of how work gets done, which is largely dictated by state law, um, doesn't always make it easy to participate as someone who's not investing a lot of energy or time. So, you know, I understand when people feel like, Something's happened that they didn't know about, and therefore there's a sort of ulterior motive. But it's almost never, my experience at least has been, it's almost never the case that you know that the folks who are who are working on things at an elected level locally or at a staff level locally are are doing so in a way that's trying to subvert the will of the public or anything like that. It's a trusting government issue that is much bigger, obviously, than the town of Mansfield. It's it's something that has eroded over the years everywhere. And it's something that you see, but it's something, you know, that you see at the local level too. Now, it's not like Ben is sitting around with extra time. Uh, He likes to be busy. He's been the chair of the Mansfield Democratic Town Committee for several years. He's on the steering committee of Young Energetic Solutions, known as YES, which empowers young people to create vibrant communities in Connecticut. And he's on the board of directors of the Housing Education Resource Center. So he's still very active and, and busy and 
as I said, I've known him for a while. He's he's been like this uh, since he was a student. He's he's totally engaged in what's going on in the community. Very cool. It's great to see uh, students getting so involved in public life too mm-hmm. after they graduate, or while they're here too. Really, at any point, get involved in public life. It's good, potentially good. I'll say. <laughs> so uh, next year is a very important. 50th anniversary for something at UConn. Does anyone have a guess as to what that might be? 50 years next year. Hmm. Is it a cultural center? It's not. I don't know. <laughs> That's my only guess. <laughs> and I'm the only one guessing, apparently. <laughs> that's all right. It's, uh, it's the 50th anniversary of the publication of Silent Spring. No, that's not true. <laughs> it is the 50th anniversary of the first graduating class of physicians and dentists. Oh, yes, I did know that. I've I've been involved in discussions about that. I'm surprised. You edit the health that. journal, Julie. <laughs> I do. Well, we're still a year out, so I, I know that there'll be some uh, some interesting 50th anniversary, you know, festivities and things. But I was kind of interested in how all this came about. Um, the first class graduated in 1972. But as it turns out, the uh, prehistory of Yukon Health actually goes back to the 1940s. Yeah. The uh, ancestor of all this was Governor Raymond Baldwin who sent a letter to the Yukon Board of Trustees in December of 1945 asking them to look into whether or not Yukon should have a medical school. At this point, that was just the only question. The dental school hadn't come up yet and the possibility of a hospital hadn't come up yet. He just said, make a careful study of the entire situation. And as you know, in universities and state government, if there's, if there's one thing we love to do, it's make a careful study. So they did, and they formed a committee, which is another thing we love to do. And they produced a report that was accepted by the board in 1947. So it took almost two years to complete. And basically said, there's no need because Connecticut has so many doctors that there's no conceivable reason why we would need a school to train doctors because the state is just bursting with them. (laughs) So uh, this was an era of rapid expansion for the university with with sort of enrollment bulging as as veterans were coming back on the GI Bill and uh, new buildings were being built, new dorms were being built, new classroom buildings. So that's kind of what they focused on. But even though the university had decided, like, well, there's plenty of doctors, the state actually, as the population grew, realized there aren't enough doctors. So back in the 50s, almost 10 years after that first letter, the state came back and established its own committee to establish the need for a uh, medical school. And the state was actually kind of prodding UConn along and proposed a budget in 1956 of, of $6 million to create a new medical school. And they kind of went back and forth. And finally... The trustees agreed in the early 60s and actually got some grant funding from the federal government and from private foundations to buy a 107-acre tract of land in Farmington, Connecticut. Homer Babbage announced the new dean of the medical school. The very first dean of the medical school was Lyman Stowe, who had been associate dean of Stanford University School of Medicine. And, and kind of interestingly, he actually died before the first class started. Oh, wow. So he was he was appointed early on. And before this really got rolling, he actually he, he, he died. And so John Patterson was appointed uh, the first dean to uh, to really be present for when this stuff really started to uh, get going. So construction began in July of 1967. Clinical staff had started uh, the same year. And um, Patterson reported in 1969 that the beginning of the operational phase of the new University of Connecticut Health Center, some of us of a certain vintage, perhaps those who remember Silent Spring, still occasionally call it the health center. And we get immediately wrapped on the knuckles by uh, <laughs> brand UConn officers. Health. It's just UConn Health. I also, uh, I can't, it's, it's now a Connecticut Children's Medical and not Connecticut Children's Medical Center. I know. I've, I've That's a tough that. one too. It is a tough one. 
I guess the health industry moving away from centers. Centers. Well, it's, I think, at least for UConn Health, it's the fact that we have presence all over the state. It's not just the location in Farmington. Right. No, it makes sense. Do we know why they chose Farmington? They just want to be near Hartford? Yeah, the original plan was actually to have it in Hartford. But as the plan developed, they realized they needed a lot more space than was available in Hartford. So they were just looking for something in the area. And then the John Dempsey Hospital was, was completed uh, three years after that first class graduated. So uh, John Dempsey Hospital was, was finished 30 years after that letter from Raymond Baldwin saying, hey, do we need a medical school? <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. So I'm sure we'll be having some festivities this year. To, I, I'm guessing that some of the first class will still be around and still hopefully be able to participate. In I believe way. so, yeah. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah, that'll be fun. And if you haven't seen Yukon Health, Farmington, it's changed a lot since the 70s. There's a lot of new mm-hmm. stuff there. A lot of good stuff happening. Yeah, that's it for history. A stroll down memory lane full of committees and careful studies. <laughs> go to healthjournal.uconn.edu to read about some of the wonderful things that go on at UConn Health. You should definitely Shameless do that. plug for my own work. No shame in that plug. <laughs> that's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, why don't you go ahead and give us a follow on twitter.com at UConn Podcast. You can also check out at main underscore old where I post photos and factoids from UConn's history. Recently posted a a person on the street, a student on the street feature from 1985 with some wonderful mid-1980s haircuts on display. (laughs) And you can follow me at TJ Breen. Tyler, is there anything you would like to tell the people out there? Uh, Yes, I post to at UConn FASA on Instagram. That's a social media for the Philippine American Student Association at UConn. And Julie, other than the UConn Health Journal. I am at Julie Bartuka on Twitter. Ken? I'm at UConnToday.edu and on 91.7 WHOS in stores. Today.UConn.edu. It is today. URL. <laughs> Close. I want to see if you're um, paying attention. You said you were sleepy. I am. I'm sleepy, but I'm paying attention. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you again in a fortnight.